You know, it's amazing how two people can uh, be looking at the same thing, the same set of facts or the same object, and come to very different conclusions about that thing. So let's take abstract art, for example. You guys know ab what abstract art is, right? My daughter Lucy and Jack, son Jack, they could tell you what abstract art is. And uh, so, you know, some people look at abstract art and they think, wow, wow, what creativity, what depth of meaning. What beauty, right? And other people like myself look at abstract art and I think, where do I take my uh, drawings on the fridge to the museum to get my kids' stuff on the wall, right? Because it looks about the same, right? And, and theirs is actually better than mine, by the way. But, uh, but you know, different, different experiences, different, different perspectives on the same thing. Or, or take, uh, you know, we've got um, this service in our area that, that you can put something on the road and, and they'll just come take it for you. It's just, if, if it's trash, just put it on the road. Not, not the trash truck, by the way. I mean something bigger that they'll come, but this claw will come down and get it, right, and put it in their dump truck and take it away. So when we do that, like, that's trash to us. But often, that stuff's not there by the end of the week for them to take. Why? Because someone is driving by and they say, that's not trash. That, that is a DIY project. That's a reclamation project. That, that is my new centerpiece in uh, our living room, right? That, that, it's, a, it's a different perspective for different people. Or consider yesterday, painfully I'm going to talk about this, the, the Florida Gators-Samford game. I don't even know Samford's mascot. What are they? I don't even know. Samford Bulldogs, all right. So Samford fans today are over the moon for scoring 52 points on the Florida Gators in defeat. And meanwhile, Gators fans like myself are absolutely demoralized in our victory yesterday. Same, same game, same information, and yet a very different response. All right, when it comes to two people being presented with the same information, the same facts, the same scenario, how we interpret those things is based on who we are and our perspective and not simply what's on being presented to us. And you know, this is true when it comes not just to trivial things, but to the most important things. This is true when it comes to uh, big political issues, like uh, immigration, or this is true when it comes to race. This is true when it comes to issues in our culture. This is true when it comes to worldview issues. This is true even when it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we can be presented with the same information to be presented with the same claims, the same scriptures, the same Jesus, and respond in entirely different ways. And that's what we see in our text this morning. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we are still in Matthew 9. Some of you are like, how long have we been in Matthew 9? And it's been a while. I'm going to tell you, it's been a while. We are trekking towards the end of Matthew 9, and then we'll start chapter 10. But we are in Matthew 9, and we're looking at verses 27 to 34 this morning. We're in a series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. And so what Matthew is doing in this gospel, in this book, is he is constantly saying two things to us. He's saying, here's who Jesus is. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures everything that came before was coming together in Jesus and here's what it means to follow him here's what it means to be his disciple over and over again Matthew is saying both of those things to us and in Matthew 9 
uh, he has been presenting Jesus to us, the claims of Jesus, and then the, the last few weeks, the response to those claims, the response of faith that we need to have. And our passage this morning continues that. We're in Matthew 9, verses 27 through 34. Matthew 9, verses 27 through 34. Let's read this. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. There's two parts to this story, two sections, two scenes that take place. And in the first scene, we have the recognition of Jesus. The recognition of Jesus in verses 27 through 31. Look at verse 27 again. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. So two blind men recognize Jesus. Two blind men. Now let's just think about this for a minute. The blindness of these men. Consider their suffering. While today there are many ways blind people can learn and participate in society, in ancient Israel, that was not the case. To be blind was to be absolutely helpless. Helpless. To be blind was to be completely dependent on others. So, so, so that's the situation. These men, they, they are helpless. They are dependent. They, they are living a, a, a life of true suffering. And also, I want you to consider their disadvantage when it comes to Jesus. That they, unlike most people in Israel at this time, have never witnessed one of his miracles. Why? Because they're blind. They can't see them, right? They, they have not been able to see the things that Jesus has done. They, they, they are not eyewitnesses. They are suffering, and they have not been able to see anything that Jesus has done. They've only heard. They've only heard of what Jesus is doing, and yet because of what they've heard, and because of their suffering, these blind men uh, find their way to Jesus, and they start calling out to him, have mercy on us, and they use this title, Son of David. Son of David. Now Matthew called Jesus the Son of David way back in the genealogy in chapter 1, but that's the only time so far in the book that we've heard Jesus referred to this way. This is the first time in the gospel that anyone actually recognizes Jesus' identity truly. They recognize that he is the son of David, these two blind men. So when they were confessing, have mercy on us, son of David, when they were confessing Jesus is the son of David, what would they have been thinking as they used that term, as they used that title? And, and let's just revisit who David was for a few minutes this morning. Any kids here know who David was, heard of David before? Raise your hand, kids, if you know about David, right? David was a shepherd, Right? He was a shepherd who watched over his father's sheep. He was just a little guy, seems, and, and he had older brothers, and yet God chose David to be his next king. 
David was a shepherd, and, and, and pretty soon he was a giant slayer, right? David, D- David uh, faced Goliath, and David, because of his faith uh, in God's power, when all the Israelites were afraid, David faced Goliath and, and threw the, the, the little stone, right, that was slung round and round. It hit Goliath on the forehead, and David defeated the giant. David was a shepherd turned giant slayer. David was also God's anointed turned exile Let's think about this for a minute. God chose David to be the next king of his people after Saul had failed. And and God anointed David in front of his family to be that next king. But before David became king, after he slayed Goliath, Saul was jealous of David. And David was on the run. David had to leave Jerusalem. David had to flee in the mountains. David, David was an exile from the people of God for a time. And then in God's timing and will and providence, he finally brought David back to be king over his people. And as king, David brought security to Israel. David brought prosperity to the kingdom of Israel. And in that moment, God made David his covenant son. God God entered into a covenant with David and with David's line in 2 Samuel 7. And he said that your line will reign forever and ever. And and that the king uh, from David's line would be as his son in Israel. So David was the the shepherd turned giant slayer, the anointed turned exile, the king who became the the covenant line of, of kingship in Israel. And then he died. He died and Israel then strayed away from God and they were going to go into exile for their sins. And over and over again in the prophets, here's what we find the prophets saying to Israel uh, before exile and during exile is that God is going to raise up David's house again. God's going to even send David back to you. I'm going to send David to you. He's going to be your shepherd again. And he wasn't saying he's going to literally send David back. He said, I'm going to send that son. I'm going to send that king. I'm going to send this one who will bring security back, who will bring prosperity, who, who will protect you from your enemies, who will reign over you in righteousness, who will be the shepherd king that David was to you. And, and this, this all led to this expectation that there was going to be a Messiah who would be the son of David, the anointed, promised king who would restore the kingdom of Israel. And so as these blind men come to Jesus and they call him son of David, they're saying, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the promised one. You're the king. And, and all we need to say is that they were right. They were right. These blind men got it. They recognized who Jesus was. The first ones in the gospel of Matthew to recognize that. Well, how did Jesus respond to this cry? Well, it's interesting. At first, he didn't respond to this cry. The way Matthew describes the scene is that Jesus was walking from one place back to the house he was staying at, and they're following him, and they're saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David, over and over and over again. And Jesus apparently just continues walking. As they follow behind him, he's he's not answering them until he goes into the house he's staying at. And there they follow him into the house. And here in the privacy of the home, he finally addresses them. Look at verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Now again, this is somewhat surprising if we've been following 
just the way that Jesus has conducted his ministry so far. So far, whenever someone comes to Jesus uh, for healing, he recognizes their faith and immediately heals them. And, and of course we see faith here. They're calling him son of David, right? Yet here, instead of just responding to their faith immediately, Jesus presses in and he asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? This question centers on himself. It centers on his ability to do this miracle. And what he's doing is he's sharpening the focus of their faith that's already present. They understand he's the son of David, but he's pressing them even further and saying, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that, do you believe that I have the ability to heal you? And they say to him, yes, Lord. They said to him, yes, Lord. And when we read that, we can understand that as they say, yes, Lord, that, that in some way they are grasping the significance of this son of David. They, they are grasping that, that this figure is not just another human king. No, they're grasping that, that this, this son of David is in some way uh, the Lord, in some way connected to the promise of God to himself come to his people. They, they recognize what no one else could recognize about Jesus. And again, they're blind. They're blind, and yet they're seeing all of this. There's this worshipful recognition that he is this divine Davidic king. And Jesus responds to their faith this way. He says in verse 29, Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And so because of their faith, on account of their faith, the faith being the instrument through which they are connected to Jesus, Jesus heals them, and for the first time, they can truly see. Now, if you were one of these blind men and this happened to you, what would you want to do next? You would want to go tell somebody, right? You, you, you would want to go and proclaim what has happened to you that you can see now, and, and yet Jesus says to them, look in verse 30, Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Jesus gives the man a firm instruction not to tell anybody about what he did or who he is. They recognize who he is. They're right. He's the son of David, the, the, the divine Davidic king that God promised, and they receive healing from him, and now Jesus says to keep it a secret. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he say, don't tell anybody? Well, he did this because even though they rightly recognized who he is, no one was prepared to understand what he came to do. No, no one in Israel was prepared to understand that this son of David, who they expected was going to come and judge their enemies and set up the kingdom and reign, and th this, was, this was the time for the kingdom to be restored, that's not, that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came with a different mission. Just as David was anointed, and then was in exile and suffered. So Jesus is God's anointed one, but he was going to suffer before he would reign. Jesus came not to judge sinners, but to suffer for sinners, to be judged for sinners through the cross. That's what we said early in Galatians, that he came to become a curse for us, to be hung on a tree for us, for sinners, so that we can be saved. Jesus came not to establish God's kingdom, but to make a way into that kingdom. If Jesus had come and just established God's kingdom, he would be king, but no one would be in that kingdom. 
Jesus came to make a way for rebel sinners to be part of that kingdom by coming and taking on the punishment of their rebellion. Suffering the judgment and wrath of God in the place of sinners and then rising again from the dead. But at this time, no one was prepared to understand these things. And if word got out that here's the Son of David, here's the Messiah, then it would have, would have completely derailed his mission. And so he tells these blind men to keep his identity under wraps. Apparently, though, that's like telling your little children to keep a surprise party a secret. They're just not going to be able to do it, right? These guys cannot contain their excitement. Verse 31, they went away and spread his fame through all that district. We were talking this week, a few other guys with me, is, where the, is this sin? Is this wrong? You, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. All we can say is that they couldn't help themselves, right? They, they had been healed. They had met the Messiah. They had met the king, and they spread his fame throughout the district. These blind men recognize Jesus. This leads to the next scene in this passage, the rejection of Jesus. The rejection of Jesus. Verses 32 and 33. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. So this next part of the story begins with Jesus casting out a demon from a mute man. But notice that Matthew doesn't actually show us the miracle itself, does he? He says the man was brought to Jesus and then says once the demon had been cast out. Uh, So if this was a movie, it's like you're watching the movie and someone brings the man to Jesus and then it's like it would skip a scene and now you're just on the other side and 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 the man's man's healed and people are, that's amazing, but you're like, I wanted to see the miracle. (laughs) Like, you, you skipped the best part, Matthew. What's going on? The reason Matthew does this is because the focus of this second part of the story is not on the mute man. It's on a group of people who witnessed this miracle, the Pharisees. Look at what he says. The crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. See, the whole crowd of people had witnessed this amazing miracle. The power and authority of Jesus is undeniable here. And it's unprecedented. Never have we seen anything like this. No prophet has ever done this. No, no ruler has ever done this. No, no one's ever done anything like this. It is, to use the name of a popular apologetics book, evidence that demands a verdict. Right? That's, that's what this is. They're, they're, they're staring the evidence in the face. It demands a verdict. It demands a response. What is the verdict that the Pharisees give in response to this evidence? He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Their response to Jesus as eyewitnesses to this miraculous healing is to attribute the power of Jesus to the working of Satan in Jesus. That's their response to this evidence. And again, for the first time in this gospel, we see an outright rejection of Jesus. Now it's been it's been brewing. It's been stirring in them. They've been asking questions. They've been a little uncomfortable with Jesus. But here, they, they firmly and resolutely set themselves in opposition to Jesus. And this, this begins a whole, new, a whole new section of the Gospels move forward, that now Jesus has enemies. They reject Jesus. And that's where this story ends. 
for tracing through the book, that's where this entire section of Matthew ends that we've been in, in Matthew 8 and 9, with this rejection of him by the Pharisees. And I want to ask, what is the meaning of all this for us today? What, what are we supposed to take from this for ourselves and our lives right now? You know, last week we saw that Matthew set up a contrast between uh, this religious ruler and this suffering woman. And this contrast showed us the, uh, the truth about faith and, and what it means to have true faith. And, and this story, similarly, is setting up a contrast for us to teach us about faith. Matthew's doing that again. Here the contrast is between the blind men and the Pharisees. And let's, let's think about that for a minute. The blind men who couldn't see any of his miracles, they recognize him by faith as the divine son of David, and they experience healing. The ones who couldn't see saw. The ones who hadn't witnessed anything understand who Jesus is, and they experience the blessing of his healing. And yet the Pharisees who have been eyewitnesses to all of these miracles, the teachers of Israel, the ones who understood the scriptures, the ones who see, they reject him in unbelief. Those who can't see, see, and those who see, don't see. What does this teach us about faith? And it's simply this, church. This is the main idea this morning. Faith in Jesus is a matter of the heart, not the head. Faith in Jesus is a matter of the heart, not the head. I want to ask two questions now to help us think about that statement. Faith in Jesus is a matter of the heart. I want to ask two questions. One, why did the Pharisees reject Jesus? And two, why did the blind men recognize Jesus? Why did the Pharisees reject Jesus, and why did the blind men recognize Jesus? And so first, why did the Pharisees reject Jesus? And here's the first thing we can say. They rejected Jesus because evidence alone does not lead to faith. Evidence alone does not lead to faith. Now, I want to clarify something. This is not to say that evidence has no place in coming to faith. There is compelling historical evidence for the claims of Christ, for the resurrection of Christ, for the teaching of Scripture. Biblical faith is not irrational. It's not not unreasonable. It's not blind faith. There is evidence for faith, and God can use that evidence in someone's life. However, what I am saying is that the greatest collection of the most compelling evidence in the world is not sufficient to bring someone to faith in Jesus. And the Pharisees demonstrate this, don't they? The evidence for Jesus' claims was literally right in front of them. And yet they rejected his claims and they came up with a different interpretation of that very same evidence. It's right in front of them. Jesus says, here's who I am, and here, let me show it to you. And, and, and they say, well, we, we cannot believe that you are who you say you are, even though we see what you're doing. So we're going to say, it, it's got to be Satan. It's the only other explanation they could turn to. You're doing this by the power of Satan. Evidence alone does not lead to faith. And the reason that evidence alone does not lead to faith is because none of us come to the evidence from a neutral position. 
We are all predisposed to reject the evidence because we have deeper commitments in our hearts. That's so important to hear that. We are predisposed to reject the evidence because we have deeper heart-level commitments that keep us from that. And the Bible tells us what these deeper commitments are. According to Romans 1, we all suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's a very similar uh, situation in Romans 1. Uh, Paul is saying that God has made himself known through creation so that no one has any excuses. We have all the evidence we need in creation to see that God exists, and yet... People reject him. Why? Because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When we are presented with evidence that demands a verdict, we are predisposed to suppress the truth of that evidence and to distort it and to interpret it in a way that allows us to continue in unrighteousness, to continue in personal autonomy, to continue in pursuing our own glory. We will take the evidence and we will make it say what we want it to say so we can continue living the way we want to live because we are committed to ourselves and to our own glory. And this leads to the next reason why the Pharisees rejected Jesus. They rejected Jesus because accepting Jesus' claims about himself would mean they had to accept his claims about them. If they accepted what Jesus said about himself, it would mean that they also have to accept what he has said about them. Let's reconsider the claim of Jesus earlier in chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. He had said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So why won't the Pharisees accept Jesus' claim to be the great physician of sin-sick hearts? Why would they reject that? Why would they reject that when the evidence is right in front of them? Here's why. Because if they accept that claim, then they also need to accept that they are sinners. Then they need to accept that they need him too. Listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees on another occasion. This is from John 5, speaking to these very same Pharisees. Listen to these words carefully. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? How can you believe? You cannot believe. You can't believe. Why? Because you are more committed to your own glory than the glory of God. You are unable to believe because of your predisposition to worship yourself instead of the one true God. Your commitment to your own glory keeps you from believing in me. The Pharisees rejected Jesus because the Pharisees were self-righteous worshipers of their own glory. To accept his claims was not just a matter of the evidence presented to their minds. It was a matter of the enmity against God in their hearts. And this is true of every single one of us. When we are faced with the evidence of Jesus left to ourselves, we all have this predisposition to reject it because we love our own glory because we worship ourselves, because we are committed to living a life where we are God and he is not God. And anything that comes, no matter how compelling the evidence is, if if that evidence is telling us that we are not God, that we are not king, that we cannot live for ourselves, we cannot do it, we will reject that evidence. No matter how compelling it is, we cannot believe because we love the glory that comes from man. We cannot believe You cannot believe because of your sin, 
because of your disposition against God, because you do not want to believe. This is why the Pharisees rejected Jesus. This is why people reject Jesus. It's not because they need more evidence. Yes, God can use it, but no matter how compelling the evidence is, they cannot believe because they love their own glory more than the glory of God. Well, this leads to the second question. Why then, if all that is true, then why and how did the blind men believe? Why did the blind men recognize Jesus? How did that happen? We can say two things about the blind men. First, because they knew their need for mercy. Because they knew their need for mercy. What was their cry? Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. To ask for mercy is to say, please don't give me what I know I deserve. You see, in their blindness and in their suffering, these blind men did not presume on Jesus' power to heal them. They did not view themselves as victims in this world. They viewed themselves as those in need of mercy. They viewed themselves as those in need of of undeserved compassion from Jesus. And because they recognized their need for mercy, they were able to recognize Jesus for who he is, the divine son of David who extends God's mercy to suffering sinners. See, this gets to the heart of biblical faith. Biblical faith is not a matter of assenting to facts about Jesus. It is a matter of fully relying on Jesus, of laying yourself out on Jesus in confidence that he can meet us in our need. And the only people who will take that step of reliance are those who understand that they truly do need him. You will not believe in Jesus unless you believe you need Jesus. Jesus is true. He is the son of David. The gospel is true. But if you don't feel the need for that to be true. If you don't sense, I need the gospel to be true, you will not believe. It's impossible to come to faith in Jesus without recognizing your need for Jesus. But all this does raise a deeper question, doesn't it? How did these blind men come to see their need for mercy? Because, like I said, it's not just the Pharisees that are predisposed to reject the evidence. We are all predisposed to reject the evidence. These blind men at one point were predisposed to reject the evidence. So how did they come to this place of recognizing their need for mercy and recognizing Jesus? And this is the only conclusion we can make after all that we've said, after all that Scripture says, is that God had already opened the eyes of their hearts. Before they came to have their physical eyes opened, God had already done a deeper, eye-opening work inside of them. They had already been healed of an even deeper blindness. God had done something inside of them that made them able to see who Jesus really was. The theological term for this is called regeneration. Regeneration is the merciful work of God by His Spirit in the heart that creates faith. It's it's, it's taking that hard, blind, predisposed against God heart and making it new, changing it so that faith can occur. And for these men to come recognizing who Jesus was, recognizing their need for mercy, tells us that God had physical inside of them. And there's one more layer to this. When did this work of the heart happen? Now, we don't know exactly when it happened. (laughs) Right? 
But here's what we do know. These, these guys couldn't see. And yet somehow they knew about Jesus. They knew enough to come to him and say, have mercy on us, son of David. And here's what we know then, is that someone told them. Someone came to them and said, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he's doing. Let me tell you what he's teaching. This work of regeneration happened through the blind men hearing about Jesus. They weren't eyewitnesses because they couldn't see, but according to Scripture, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The blind men believed because someone proclaimed Jesus to them. And in that proclamation of Jesus, God opened the eyes of their hearts and gave them faith that led them to Jesus. Faith that caused them to say, have mercy on us, son of David. Faith is a matter of the heart. But what we've seen is that only God can change our hearts. Faith is a matter of the heart, but we are predisposed in our hearts against Jesus. So if faith is going to happen, then we need to say this. Faith is the gracious gift of God to undeserving sinners. It has to be. It has to be because we cannot believe. Because we love our own glory. God has to do it. And he does it. In his grace, in his mercy, he does it. He does it on account of Jesus purchasing that mercy for us on the cross. Because Jesus came, and he didn't just establish his kingdom and his reign, but because he came and he died for undeserving sinners, and he took the wrath of God for their sins, and he rose again, he has purchased the mercy through which God comes to undeserving sinners and changes our hearts so that we can believe. Faith is the gracious gift of God to undeserving sinners. Three applications this morning. First, if you are here this morning, you have not placed your faith in Jesus, then what do you make of all of this? Because I keep saying, you cannot believe. And it's true. You cannot believe. And yet, it's through faith that we experience forgiveness and we experience eternal life. So you have to believe, but you cannot do it on your own. So what do you do? Well, if God is working in your heart, then I call you this morning to recognize your spiritual blindness and to ask Jesus to open your eyes. Call on him. Use the same words that these men used about your own spiritual condition. Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me. Do what I cannot do. Change my heart. Make it new. Make it new. Grant me this gift. And if you pray that prayer, then you can know God is already working in you. He's doing it. For those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, this story needs to lead us today to give glory to God for opening our eyes. You know, there's a song we sing sometimes called Come Praise and Glorify. And one of the lyrics goes like this, Come praise and glorify our God, for we've believed the word. And you sing it at first, that sounds a little odd. Come praise and glorify our God, for we've believed the word of God for things he's done. But we're saying, praise and glorify our God, for we've believed the word. But, but what's being spoken, what are we singing in that? We're, we're recognizing, we're glorifying God, for we believe the word, because we know that we believe because he made us believe. He, he, he brought us faith, so we're glorifying him and praising him for the gift of faith. And so if you're believing this morning then understand that God did that in you. God gave you faith and give glory to him. 
Glorify him for what he's done in you, for opening your blind eyes. We sang it earlier, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys, yet your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. This is what God has done for us. If we believe this is what God has done, glorify him for the gift of faith. Do not boast in the gift of faith. Glorify him for opening eyes. And finally, if God has opened your eyes this way, then understand this, that Jesus is not instructing us to keep it a secret anymore. Jesus is not saying, don't tell anybody about it. No, he's instructing us to go and tell everyone who he is and what he has done. He's instructing us to go and tell everyone that he is the divine son of David, who came and died for our sins on the cross, rose again, and one day is coming again to save all who believe. He's saying, go tell everyone. As we proclaim this gospel, God will continue to open the eyes of more and more people for his glory. May we be so filled with joy in what he's done for us, filled with joy that he's opened our eyes, that just like these blind men, we can't help ourselves but to go and tell everyone we can and to spread his fame to others. Church, let's go and tell the world what Jesus has done for us and pray that he will open their eyes.